Hi there, and welcome to the Winter Will Come Again podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Dietrojardin, and in this podcast series, we are going to be exploring the story behind the energy crisis Europe faced the past winter, its connection with plastic production, and why, to ease Europe's energy needs, plastic has to go. In the first episode, we learned in detail how much fossil fuels are going into plastic production, and that in the future, the petrochemical industry plans to use more fossil fuels instead of less. With Russia out of the picture and Europe's fossil fuel production decreasing, big oil and gas companies are actively on the lookout for new locations to explore and build out new fossil infrastructures across the globe. This comes in stark contrast to the many statements from international organizations, such as the International Energy Agency, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that say we cannot build new fossil fuel infrastructure if you want to keep the 1.5 degree. Plastics are driving this development nonetheless. Once again, the data is very clear. Instead of reducing our plastic consumption and production, we are building new infrastructure. This is resulting in Europe being provided with the fossil fuels for its plastic production needs, yet communities around the world are left to deal with the social, environmental, physical and economical harm caused by the plastic production and the fossil fuel industry that supports it. For this episode, we are flying over to the front line to hear from two guests from two different sides of the world to better understand the true impacts of communities facing the full force of industry. Based in Pennsylvania, United States, Sarah Martik is a longtime member of Breakthrough from Plastic. She works for the Center of Coal Field Justice, based in southwest Pennsylvania, just a short drive from Beaver County, where a new $6 billion shell ethane cracker is located. She's living and working right next to East Palestine, Hawaii, where in February 2023, a train carrying toxic chemicals used to create plastics derailed, prompting a controlled explosion of the train and its contents, leading to pollution of the air and waterways in and around Beaver County and beyond. All right. So, Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today on this podcast episode. We're super excited to have you. Um, and I think just to start with, if you could please tell us a little bit about your background, your work, um, and also why why and how did you get started with your current organization? First of all, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I am the deputy director at the Center for Coalfield Justice. We're an environmental and economic justice nonprofit based in southwestern Pennsylvania. And I, I found CCJ back in 2017. Um, I grew up in a town, of, it's, it's a very small town called California, PA, but my address was Coal Center. You can't talk about my communities without talking about fossil fuels, and that dates back to before the 1900s. Like the coal that my grandfather was mining just recently had um, an impact in the, in the place where my mom grew up, right? There was a sinkhole that opened up from an abandoned mine land. So everything about how fossil fuels has impacted our region started a long time ago, but it's still present today. And I see that very clearly. Um, and I, I always want to be involved in making the place where I grew up and the place that I love a, a better place. Um, and make sure the people who live there have what they need and what they deserve because they've put a lot of work and effort and sacrifice forward in service of providing fuel and, and raw materials and steel and all that for 
other places, but um, it's time that, that we get some investment back. And, and that's what I'm here to do. Thank you so much. In the port of Antwerp in Belgium, uh, construction has begun on INEOS Project One, so a plastic mega project based on the boom of cheap US shale gas. And so they'll supply their ethane cracker with fracked gas from your backyard, actually, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so it'd be great if you could maybe give us a bit of insight into what are the impacts experienced by the communities in Pennsylvania uh, because of all of this. So in terms of economic impacts, cultural impacts, and of course, uh, environmental impacts as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think as far as the way that especially fracking has impacted southwestern Pennsylvania and, and Appalachia at, at large, I think it's probably best to start with the cultural impact because that runs pretty deep. Like I was mentioning beforehand, um, coal mining has been a part of our identity for a very long time. It was to the point where people who are being drafted or, or asked to serve in World War II um, were people who did not mine. People who were in the mines, and especially in mines that were contributing to developing steel, didn't serve in that war. They needed to keep the production open so it's almost as though the fossil fuel industry and, and like that national security, the democracy, all those kinds of values were connected from the very beginning. So that identity and that pride um, runs very deep. People have made a lot of sacrifices to work in those jobs. There's a lot of safety concerns. There are health concerns with mining. You've got history of black lung, which is a disease that there's no cure for. But people did those things anyway, to provide for their families, to be productive members of society, to support our country and, and the development of our country. And so that is critically important to understand when, when, when people are talking about how fracking was able to come into this area, because some of it, in some areas, there were, there were signs that said, drill a well, bring a soldier home. Because at that point of the fracking boom in Pennsylvania, we were very deeply involved in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And those connections were made early from the very beginning. There are also other communities where fracking operators like the landmen would come through and say, well, if, if you drill a well, the mine can't come through. And people knew that the impacts from the mine were subsidence, potential water damage, things like that. They didn't know what fracking necessarily was, but they took a, they took a gamble on, on what it was that they were allowing, thinking it might be better. For some people, it worked out great. For other people, like like has been documented in a lot of, of news coverage and books and, and court cases, the results were not so good. And I think culturally, because of the importance, because of the pride, because of how our region has identified with that very closely, um, it becomes very difficult to talk about any of the actual impacts, which are very real. And they are impacting a lot of people throughout our region. And the more you talk to people who are experiencing any kinds of issues with this industry, it is kind of astounding to see how our elected officials, our decision makers have kind of let the environmental degradation go on for as long as it has without adequately addressing it. So for example, we're working with a community in Greene County. It's a very small community called New Freeport. There was a frack out in that community in um, June of last year. So June of 2022. Um, and a frack out is when an actively fracked well, an unconventional well, interacts with another well. In this case, it was an orphan and abandoned well that was nearby. And people have very valid, very real concerns about the safety of their drinking water because of what they're seeing come out of these wells. 
This is also a community where there is no access to public water. Well water is the only source of water that they have right now. I think the nearest public water line is five miles away. So connecting into that is really not super feasible at this point. Um, So people are looking for help. People are seeing these impacts. And this is also a place where people are working in industry. They know what's going on. They know what these processes look like. They know what they might maybe should look like. And there's not a lot of help for the impacts that people are are experiencing. Um, Of course, that's where I say CCJ comes in um, and groups like mine across the country to help people kind of access that help, deal with these impacts and advocate for, for things to be better. Wow, thank you so much for this very insightful and detailed um, answer. Appreciate it. There's um, still in Pennsylvania a, a, a new LNG export terminal that's proposed to be developed, which you and, and the people that you work with also have been fighting the development of. And I was wondering if the situation in Europe contributing to the drive for the new LNG terminals in the US, such as this one, in terms of you know, the energy crisis that we, that we faced, uh, war in Ukraine, plastic production, etc. The gas has to come from somewhere, and it's ultimately going to be coming from, from the Ohio River Valley, a lot of it. And to your point about um, the impacts of the war in Ukraine, I think that what I'm seeing industry talk about, the way that I'm hearing them phrase this, is that it is very much the driving force behind why there's suddenly a push for LNG out of Philadelphia. It's such a strong push. I mentioned EQT as the operator that was responsible for the frack out in Greene County. Um, They're one of the groups that are um, pushing very hard for the development of this terminal. If you go to their website, I think the first time you open it up, you see them say unleash LNG. Um, So that's the way that they're framing it. Now, to me, as someone who is supporting communities that are impacted by this industry all the time, it is almost laughable that they seem to think that they have been put on a leash when it is very clear to me that our decision makers are always more than willing um, to step up for industry as opposed to for people who are impacted by industry. But that's a topic for a different time. I think going back to what I was mentioning earlier about how kind of the identity of fossil fuels is this very much like fossil fuels and democracy go hand in hand. And like, this is all about the war effort. This is not a new story that people are telling. The fracked gas industry is not telling this completely new thing. They're just reviving old arguments and and old narratives from coal and other conflicts. I won't sit here and deny that there's definitely, you know, a conflict and that's putting a lot of pressure on European allies. I'm not going to also pretend to be an, a geopolitical expert, so I'm not really sure what all those implications of all of that are, but I think this report was really important for highlighting some of the false choices that people are, are experiencing right now. And I don't think it's it's okay to play on people's very deep concern for people of Europe right now to advocate for corporate profits. I think that that's, um, that's just morally not okay. This is a very serious situation and people need to take it that way. Absolutely. As you're part of the Breakthrough from Plastic U.S. Environmental Justice Delegation to the U.N. Global Plastics Treaty Negotiation, uh, it'd be great if you can uh, tell us a little bit more in terms of the, the messages that you're trying to bring into these negotiations and what kind of concrete change um, would you like to see actually from that? I think that what I've, what I've seen so far as far as the way that um, Break Free from Plastic partners are engaging in this space and the way that they're advocating and we are advocating for 
a very comprehensive treaty that addresses the entire cycle of how plastics are produced and made and used and disposed of. I think that that is absolutely critical. I think it would be all too easy for decision makers, especially from the United States, to go into the space and maybe address more downstream impacts and leave the upstream parts alone because the fossil fuel interests in the United States are um, very powerful. And I think that this treaty, in order for it to be really effective, it has to address that. I view my role of being there as bringing that the history and the understanding of what Appalachia has been asked to give time and time again for different corporate profits and different industries to the table and hopefully, you know, help to prevent this administration from shying away from that and acknowledging that. Um, I think that you know, at CCJ, we always talk to people about the power of story and why it's really important to share. Even, I mean, share with your neighbors, right? If a landman knocks on your door, you tell your neighbor, like, "Hey, this is what they told me. This is what I'm. This is what I'm hearing." Um, but it's important to tell it at every level, like from that very, very close knit level to also the the global impact. That's super critical. And I also, I think that too too many voices from the ground are, are often not brought into those spaces. It gets to a place where it's very theoretical and it's very policy wonky and it's very, there's lots of rules and, and procedures and all those things. And every single thing that happens there, everything that happens at the federal level, the state, all these policy implications at every level impact people's daily lives. There's, there, there's not a child in Southwestern Pennsylvania that goes to school or lives, you know, less than three miles away from a well pad. Within three miles, something is around, you know, and that's a pretty big impact. And I think that this treaty is going to help to curb that because the plastic demand is just unreal. The projections for how it's how it's going to be built out is unreal. It's going to have very tangible impacts for, for everyday people. And I don't want that to get lost in the conversations that happen at the UN. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, maybe to let our listeners know, where can they find you? How can they support your work? Yeah, our website is centerforcoalfieldjustice.org. Um, it's a pretty great w website, so go check it out. We've got information on there. And um, we are a member-based organization, so we're always interested in having new members, um, especially if, you, if people are listening from, from our service area of Washington and Greene Counties. That's my, that's my little pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Super. Thank you so much. Thank you. While working on the report and on this podcast, it came very clearly that there's also European hunger for African energy sources. In a continent where half of the population does not have access to conventional energy sources and are not connected to the grid, European policymakers are scrambling to land new oil and gas contracts with African leaders for European imports. Knowing that the petrochemicals are the largest driver of oil and gas growth, this means that we'll be denying local communities access to energy to essentially produce single-use plastics. Not to mention the impacts that this extraction has on the communities living in these regions. For the second part of this episode, we are in conversation with Bekumuzi Dean Bebe, who's a campaigner at PowerShift Africa, based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and has traveled in different parts of the African continent, also works with local communities, and has observed the damage of what is still a very colonial dynamic between European and African governments when it comes to oil and gas deals. 
So, Dean, thank you so much for being with us for the Winter is Coming podcast today. We're super happy to have you. So thanks for making time. Um, and to get started, tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, where are you based? And maybe what brought you to work on specific topics that you work on currently? Hi. So my name is Pehumuzi uh, Dean Pepe. I am the co-facilitator for the Don Gas Africa campaign. And I think a background about me is how I really got into this space was growing up, I used to visit my grandparents' village, um, which is in Zimbabwe. And the wonderful part about that was we grew up eating these wonderful traditional dishes and would all sit around the fire listening to elders telling us different stories. But as the years went by, you know, as droughts really hit sub-Saharan Africa, there was, you know, this notion around food shortages. And that was really present um, in my grandparents' village. And I began to realize that, you know, climate justice or rather climate injustice was at the root of their suffering. And that realization really um, pushed me to start fighting for the future of our planet and improving the lives of Africans. And and since then, I've really, you know, woken up every day with the renewed deten- uh, determination to to be the voice for the voiceless and advocate for a better world for all. And, you know, despite the lack in progress and the empty promises, you know, I do, you know, feel inspired to continue, you know, um, to work on those issues, you know, until issues around energy appetite, for example, is eradicated and decision makers in the boardrooms really understand the dangerous consequences of their actions. So I think pretty much that has been my life for the last 10 years, but I do have three to five years campaigning experience um, based currently in South Africa, Johannesburg. Perfect. Thanks a lot for the for the background. And I love that you mentioned climate injustice because indeed that's an angle that we should take uh, a lot of the times to then, you know, strategize around uh, climate justice. Uh, to start with, I'd love to dive into the work of the Don Gas Africa campaign that you just uh, quickly mentioned. If you could take us to when and how was this campaign set up and maybe what are the main objectives uh, of it? Um, so the Don't Gas Africa campaign is a collection of different civil society organizations from Africa who came together to create a movement to push back on fossil gas production. Um, and increasingly, we've seen a strong growth around the fossil fuel industry that has profited for decades by ex- exploiting and exporting fossil fuels from Africa, leaving hundreds of millions of people without energy access. And there's this growing narrative really to try and justify the expansion, which is ultimately grounded on trying to achieve, you know, energy access. Um, However, in an ultimate paradox, the industry has helped fundamentally to colonize and exploit Africa and is characterizing any position to the expansion as neocolonial, racist, anti-African and anti-development So we can look at the uh, fossil fuel industry that has profited for decades by exploiting and exporting fossil fuels from Africa. And this has significantly left over 600 million people without energy access. And this in turn has changed the dynamic around a play that I would like to consider or regard as a game of narratives. And this narrative is really are grounded around trying to justify the fossil fuel industry's expansion, particularly on fossil gas production. And on one hand, 
we have the idea around the anti-Pushikin's gas is viewed as something that is neo-colonial, racist, anti-African and anti-development. And us on the other hand, which is an ultimate paradox, is that the industry or rather the fossil fuel industry has helped colonize and exploit Africa. And this to a larger extent has really then created this whole um, energy theft, energy destruction, um, energy neocolonialism idea that is being pushed um, by the Don't Gas Africa campaign. But significantly, if we were to touch on the campaign's main demands, it was really to ensure that Africa is not locked in a fossil gas production. So we want this campaign or rather to be a movement that really joins other movements across Africa in demanding an end to fossil gas and other dangerous, obsolete and inappropriate energy systems. We also call to an end to a fossil fuel-induced energy appetite, which I've previously mentioned has left over 600 million people without access to more than clean, renewable energy. Thank you. I think um, that's that. these are really, really relevant and interesting points to make. Very powerful. Thank you for that. But just shifting to um, humans and communities, I'm interested in, in having a better overview as to what I'm going to assume are very problematic impacts uh, with the communities that you work with in terms of access to energy, climate resilience, public health, uh, environmental health as well. Uh, can you maybe lay down some of the impacts that these communities are facing as a result of fossil fuel extraction? I think before I answer that question, I just wanted to quickly touch on actually how the fossil fuel industry has co-opted with governments um, that will then lead to the ripple effect that it has inevitably uh, caused. So we have at the very beginning, you know, with COP26, there was the Glasgow statement committing to billions of dollars towards clean energy, which is grown on renewable energy. Then Russia invaded Ukraine, and then Europe was plunged into an energy crisis, which then gave birth to a change in EU taxonomy, which allowed Europe to be able to invest into gas projects in Africa. When that happened, that then quickly triggered the common position by the African Union to try and adopt gas as a transition fuel, which birthed the Don't Gas Africa campaign, as I initially mentioned. This was also on the backdrop of the se for all Kigali Round Forum that was hosted earlier on that year, where we saw 10 African ministers positioning Africa as key export countries that are able to adopt and embrace gas as a transition fuel. This then led to a plethora of ripple effects where we saw the Africa Energy Week in South Africa through the Africa Energy Chamber, through the United Nations Economic Commission in Africa, which is UNECA, um, and se for all coming together to form S uh, Team Energy Africa which was to geopolitically leverage Africa's oil and gas reserves. And this is on the backdrop of how African communities have essentially suffered. Because if we look at it, number one, we've got Mozambique as a case study, which is flawed at the very essence of it. If we look at it in the context of the number of people that have already died in the Cabo Delgado province, we've got over 600 people dead. We've got 35,000 people homeless. We've got a potential of 2,000 people that are going to be homeless in the next two months because then they're going to start uh, producing offshore gas. That means that everyone 10 kilometers from the shore has to be fundamentally be moved. Mind you, them being moved does not is not grounded on compensation, is not grounded on some debt being repaid. These people are having their land that has been 
in their family for thousands of generations or rather hundreds of generations being taken without their consent and they're not being compensated. So there's land grabs. So there's the issue around free, prior and informed consent. And that is also then fueled, you know, the violence that we do see in Mozambique. If you look at Senegal already, 80% of the people in Senegal are food insecure, particularly in the fishing communities as a result of gas production. Just two months ago, the St. Louis fishing community wanted to go and fish on the other side where BP is actually uh, uh, producing gas. Um, because currently where they were given rights to fish, all the fish have finished. And what actually happened is the government ordered the fishing boats of the fishing communities to be destroyed. And this is also on the backdrop of mothers having lost their sons. I met a woman because I was in Senegal about three months ago. I met a woman whose son... Uh, chose to move from Senegal and try and go to France, you know, in order to create a new life and in order to create new income for the family because there's simply no fish. Um, that son died on the way. And two months later on, because of the deteriorating marine ecosystems in Senegal, that woman lost her house. So in under three months, this woman has lost her income, she's lost her, her son, and she's lost her homestead all because of fossil gas production that has inevitably deteriorated the marine ecosystem. And no one has compensated this woman. No one has gone up to this woman and said sorry. So there have been significant impacts across Africa, and not to mention the obvious one, which is essentially energy access. People do not have energy access. And again, I want to reiterate and make this clear that the argument to say that Africa does need to develop and we are going to develop if we embrace fossil gas because we need to start uh, producing electricity to achieve energy access is highly and extremely flawed because we already know through coal, through oil, that has not happened. And that has significantly left African communities vulnerable. In terms of the role of, of plastic production specifically and, and you know, the role that this plays within the deals that we just discussed that are impacting so many people uh, across the African continent, what do you think um, would, be, would be interesting to note there in terms of the role? So if we're looking at how plastic plays a role in this, we have to understand that you know, currently I think it's over 500 billion in terms of the plastic size, uh, market size industry which is quite lucrative. But then we also have to then ground it on the fact that in the early 1900s, there was only 2 million tons of pl plastics being created in comparison to 2023 now, which is over 370 billion tons. So it's a massive industry as a whole. And that is also grounded on the fact that fossil fuels play a major role in producing plastics. You know, if we look at South Africa alone, South Africa's plastics industry is dominated by the packaging industry, which accounts for 52% of the local market. That is then followed by building and construction, which is set at around 13%. So we can already tell that there's a strong uh, relationship between plastics and also fossil fuels. And essentially, how one would want to play this out would be to call for the restriction of plastic production to end grounded on their dependence on fossil fuels. So new plastic production facilities are major industrial sources of greenhouse gas emissions. By limiting new production, we can avoid infrastructure being put in place that will keep us reliant on fossil fuels. We also need to end fossil fuel and plastic subsidies. By then, I mean plastics are heavily subsidized by the same tax in incentive 
that really props up fossil fuels, making them cheap, plentiful, and hard to manage. So eliminating those subsidies will enable alternatives to compete and freeing up pressure, uh, precious tax dollars uh, for investment into clean energy solutions. And also we need to advance a legally binding global instrument to end uh, plastic pollution, which I think is already in the pipeline. But I believe if that is also coupled with uh, an initiative that it, that that is grounded on international co- cooperation, which will be governed by the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. I believe the Plastic Treaty would prove to be something substantial and mindful as we look to not only to end plastic production, but also to tackle the growing climate emergency. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. So I think just to close the conversation, one last question that I'd like to touch on, uh, you know, is essentially how the case and everything that we just discussed in terms of fossil fuel deals really is a representation, a tragic representation of, you know, short-term fix for a long-term problem. So I want to ask you to, you know, try to give our listeners a bit of hope. <laughs> in your opinion, what is a better way forward that is more fair in terms of just transition, you know, very concrete things that you have in mind that would, um, that would help for a better way forward? Importantly, Africa needs to have the ability to make its own decisions with regards to its energy uh, future. Um, there have been a significant number of convenings, for example, the European Gas Conference, where they were discussing uh, geopolitically leveraging gas um, for Europe's energy markets. Obviously, because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, we all know that they are not going to get gas from Russia. So essentially, Africa was a big topic. But, you know, Africa was not invited to that convening, meaning whatever was concluded or what was decided or proposed was outside the consultation of what African needs are. So we need to essentially try and divorce this whole top-down approach around deciding what Africa's energy system should look like without really understanding what it means to be an African, without really understanding pan-African values and the identity that comes with being an African. Because essentially, I do believe that we have the ability to solve our own problems in as much as we also have the resources to actually unlock key energy systems that are grounded and fueled by a clean energy system which can be operationalized through renewable energy because the sun is shining in Africa. It does not stop and the wind is constantly blowing. As I'm talking to you right now, I am heating up in the sun and this energy is not being tapped, right? And we've got the other side that says that, you know, sometimes the sun doesn't shine, sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Small, medium enterprises across Europe have already adopted key storage solutions and actually making a strong income out of it. And that's also another avenue that small, medium enterprises in Africa could pursue, develop the technology for energy uh, storage solutions in order for us to leapfrog towards renewable energy in Africa. But fundamentally, that argument is also flawed because the sun is constantly uh, shining. And if there is no sun, we can definitely depend on the wind. So I do believe that we have to de- colonize in order for us to decarbonize and again you know vice versa in order for us to decarbonize we need to decolonize considering the inequality gaps in 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 africa and if we can cut down on that system through renewable energy because that essentially cannot be commodified we are golden decolonize to decarbonize love that uh, beautiful way to end this conversation Dean, thank you so so much i uh, really appreciate you 
If our listeners want to follow you, support your work, where can they find you? Sure, they can find us on Twitter at, at Don't Gas Africa. And we are also on Instagram at Don't Gas Africa as well. And please do follow us because we are really trying to push for a sustainable energy future, but not only for Africa, but for the global south. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have heard how the European Union and its member states attempts to secure oil and gas from Africa, from the US and elsewhere, offers only a short-term fix for what truly is a long-term problem. It's sustaining and deepening the climate crisis and imposing significant environmental and health costs on the countries and communities where extraction occurs. We're just one episode away from wrapping up the winter will come again story. Take a listen to our next and final chapter where we'll be exploring the global and EU policies that could nudge Europe towards a future with a reduced dependency on fossil fuels and a drastic reduction in plastic production. 